What do you believe in? It's a question that I have for you. This one's rhetorical, but for you, call out. What do you believe in? What are, what is the the thing that the things that drive you? I don't mean this. You know, I believe that coffee is better than tea, which is self-evident, or uh, Holdens are better than Fords, or dogs are better than cats, obviously. But um, I mean, what are the serious things, the things of great import that you believe in that drive you to live the way that you do? Sometimes they're beliefs that we just have, uh, they're, they're less beliefs, so to speak, things that we've chosen to believe and more assumptions that we've picked up along the way. And they just seem to work for us and so we keep on with them. But whether our beliefs are true or not, we all hold beliefs about how the world works, how we should live. And these beliefs drive our choices around everything from what type of uh, products we use in our home or how we educate our children to what moral choices we make, how we have relationships with other people. In some sense, we become what we believe. We fit ourselves into the way that we think the world is and we train ourselves into a mould based on how we think. So what you believe matters. It shapes you and makes you what you are. But it also matters because if you believe the wrong thing, you can get seriously messed up. Let's say, for instance, uh, going back a few decades, you believed that cigarettes were healthy for you and you chain-smoked a pack a day for 40 years. Your belief in that situation doesn't matter because you have believed the wrong thing and you're going to most likely suffer great consequences for having the wrong belief. So wrong beliefs, beliefs aren't just all neutral. It's not like you can go into a supermarket and you've got a shelf full of different beliefs and you can just go and pick one off the shelf and it kind of doesn't matter between one or the other. No, the beliefs matter because of the great consequences caught up in them. You can believe something that is wrong and get seriously led down the garden path. So our beliefs need to be founded on reality and on truth because our life may depend on it. What we believe about the afterlife can have long-term effects, eternal effects. So there are wrong beliefs. And this is, not, this is a bit of an unpopular opinion in the world today to be able to say to somebody, no, you are wrong. But it's actually out of love that we need to say to people when they believe something that is wrong to point it out. So what should you believe? What must you believe? Well, that's what we're looking at here today. And you might think it's arrogant to talk about these things so plainly. You would prefer that I try to win you over with, uh, with uh, you know, compelling arguments and, and stroke your ego to make you feel good about what I have to say. But this is much more important than that. This is more important than tickling your ears or trying to make you feel good when you leave here this morning. This is life and death. I need to tell you what you must believe. And it's not coming from me. It's not my authority. This is the Lord God of the universe who has spoken to you to tell you what you must believe. John wrote this book, this Gospel of John, so that people could believe in Jesus and find everlasting, true, real life. 
And across the first half of the book of John, we've seen highs and lows, moments where things seem to be going great, with heaps of people believing in Jesus, he's the promised Messiah, everybody's on track, Jesus is getting more and more popular. And things seem to be building to climactic moments at various points across the book. But then Jesus would say, my hour has not yet come. Or he was basically saying, it's not the right time yet. And then the lows would come with people deserting Jesus and Jesus going into hiding because the, uh, the authorities were, had put out a hit, um, put out an assassination order for his head. And this passage that we're reading this morning is continuing on from one of those recent highs. We had the triumphal entry where Jesus came into Jerusalem, the, the royal city for that nation. He came into Jerusalem on a donkey, fulfilling prophecies of old. And the people lined the streets and they brought out their palm branches and, and they sang parts of psalms to this king as he came into town. This great moment that they were hanging out for, it's here. The king is here. And so our passage continues off the back of that after all this has just happened. There's an upcoming festival called Passover. And so there's people coming in, streaming in from all parts of the Roman Empire, especially people from Jewish background, but some people who, who weren't Jews by birth but had taken on faith in the Lord, the God of the Jews. The intensity is building as the people stream into the city. And as the expectation about who Jesus is and what he's going to do rises, will he be installed as the new king? Or will he be finally assassinated by the incumbent leadership? Will these followers now stick with Jesus or will they abandon him like last time? In this passage, Jesus is tipping us off to what's coming in the future, in the coming days for him. And I've divided the text into three points a good uh, bread and butter sermon structure for you this morning. Three points. Three points that each summarize the main thrust of the three parts of this passage. These are three things that everybody needs to know. Three things that every person needs to know. So let's look at it. The first thing that every person needs to know is that Jesus came to die. Jesus came to die. Because last time in John, if you remember, I'll catch you up if you don't remember, the, there were some Greeks that came to meet Jesus. Remember, Jesus is Jewish and uh, from the, the nation of Israel. And some Greeks came specifically to speak to Jesus. They'd come up for the, for the festival. So presumably they were people who were believing. They'd converted essentially to the Judaism of the day. They were trusting in the Lord God, but they were in expectation of their Messiah as well. And so these Greeks come to speak to Jesus. And Jesus says, right after these Greeks come to find him, Jesus says, my hour has come. When foreigners come seeking after Jesus, Jesus says, my hour has come. And now Jesus is going to flesh out what this hour looks like. And we're going to start looking at verse 27. Jesus is, is starting by telling us about the purpose of why he has come and what this hour is for, what this time ahead of him is for. He says, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. 
Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. So Jesus here asks some rhetorical questions. He's feeling, as a man, he's feeling the weight of what's coming. Because remember, Jesus is fully God and fully man. And in his humanity, he feels the enormity of the task ahead of him. And so he's troubled. So how should he respond? He asks this question openly. How should I respond to the way that I'm feeling right now? Should I ask God to give me an escape? To give me an out? No way! Jesus came for this very purpose. Why would you jump off at the last moment just before it all comes together? Jesus came for this. This was the point. He came into the world as a man with his end point of his ministry and teaching and miracles all coming to a head in this time. And Jesus is doing it all for God's glory. And that's why Jesus prays, Father, glorify your name. And the Father responds from heaven. He says, I have, I've already have, and I'll do it again. This is the greatest thing that anybody in the world can aspire to, and that is to glorify God. This is ultimately what the world exists for. And even though the world has been derailed by sin and death, God is working to make sure that even the insurrection of humanity would be something that glorifies God and is good for us. That's why in the Westminster Catechism, if anybody is familiar with it, there's a very famous, the first question is quite famous. The question is, what is the chief end of man? And I wonder, does anybody know what the answer is? What is the chief end of man? I got a smattering. It's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. I wonder if you can say that with me. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Jesus shows us what it looks like for His chief end to be to glorify God. He came to glorify God. He came to bring us to God And he does that through this mission that the Father has given him. And the Father answered from heaven saying, yes. (laughs) He's approving what Jesus is saying. Now, anybody can walk out of the the woodwork, come out of the woodwork and say, oh, I'm doing God's will. You know, maybe a Blues Brothers, you know. I'm, I'm on a mission from God. Anybody can say that. But the question is, is it true? And here Jesus is saying, Those words that he says, this is God's will, this is God's plan. And not only is uh, it being backed up by the the signs of the prophecies of old, not only is it being backed up by the, the miracles that he was performing, but God occasionally speaks from heaven to back him up. That's that's a seal of approval, if ever I heard one. Jesus was on track doing the Father's work. And then Jesus starts to illuminate what the mission will be heading forward. It's unconventional. It's uh, unexpected. Jesus says, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. So Jesus He's talking about this hour, 
This hour includes the judgment of the world. Not judgment day. When we think of uh, judgment, we, we might be thinking about the last day, judgment day. But, but this is a different kind of judgment. This is a judgment of the ruler of the world. But you might be thinking, hang on a second, I thought God was the ruler of the world. Yes. However, there is a ruler of the world who uh, was a bit of a usurper. We know him as Satan or the devil. He's the de facto king of the world because everybody has defected to his side. There are only two sides in life, with God or against him. There's no neutral or middle. If you're content to just coast through life and not to think too hard about matters of faith, just trying to live a good life, be a good person, then you're doing exactly what Satan wants. You're playing right into his hand and sitting comfortably outside God's kingdom. But Jesus' mission came to dethrone that king and to call people out of Satan's kingdom into the kingdom of God. Jesus comes to overthrow Satan. And how will he do it? He does it by being lifted up. This being lifted up is a euphemism for being crucified. He's going to be lifted up on a cross and suffer for the sins of the people who are trapped under Satan's power. Because... Satan is like a lawyer. Satan literally means accuser. So he's like a lawyer standing before God saying, God, these aren't your people. They've sinned against you. Look at all the sins they've committed against you, all the crimes that they have committed against your holy law. Satan points out that we have no business being God's people because we're treasonous scoundrels. But Jesus comes to deal with that sin. The, The thing that is a barrier that Satan could point to and say, these people are rebelling against you. Jesus comes to overcome those crimes, to suffer the punishment, to deal with those sins, to deal with the treason. He suffered the penalty on that cross on behalf of his people. And so now all people can come to God through Jesus Christ, including those Greeks that had come to Jesus just a few paragraphs before. They can come to Jesus because Jesus would deal with their sin and throw, call them to come to him. And now Satan will have no leg to stand on. Because all of the sins can be washed away, what power is there in accusing people before God of crimes that have already been atoned for? So Jesus came to die. He came to cast out the devil with his death. Now Jesus draws all the nations to himself so that they can come to God. But the people who are listening to Jesus are going, hang on a second. We've been reading our Old Testament and what you're saying doesn't match up with what we've been reading or what we understand. How can these things go together? They say, uh, the crowd spoke up. We've heard from the law. uh, We've heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So they're doing the right thing. They're on the right track. They've been reading Daniel chapter 7, where God talks about the Son of Man. And they've been reading the promises to David and that God is going to set a king from David's line on the throne forever. They've been putting the pieces together. They're using the term law here as a, as a, a, a term to describe the Old Testament. So they're putting the pieces together and they're going, hang on a sec, the, the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7 and the king from David's line 
they are going to reign forever. So how can the Son of Man be lifted up and die? But instead of answering their question, Jesus does his, uh, his classic sidestep and doesn't face the question head on. He says, I'm only here for a little while and you need to get on board. Jesus told them, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before the darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. And when he'd finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. So why didn't Jesus answer them directly? Presumably it wasn't the right time. There is a sense in which Jesus is keeping the spiritual enemies like Satan on the back foot. And before the crucifixion, he doesn't really reveal, he doesn't put all his cards on the table. And Jesus plays this one close to the chest. They, those guys were on the right track, but Jesus doesn't answer them head on. He says, instead, it's time for you to pay attention and stick with me a bit longer so that you can become children of light. These ones who belong to God in a world of darkness. And so Jesus will show us the path of salvation. Believe in this light and become children of light, children of God, as Adam was describing before. And remember, we take on the character of the object of our belief. We become like God when we believe in him. Not like him in terms of divine, but, but like him as we take on his characteristics. We take on his image. So for these people that Jesus was talking to, they were about to face the darkness of losing Jesus soon. But thankfully, the Holy Spirit has brought the light of Jesus to us this very day. However, the same pressure still remains with us. The darkness is coming. The time of repentance, the time of calling people into God's kingdom will come to an end. Either when you depart this earth or when Jesus returns bodily. One day the opportunity to come into God's kingdom will come to an end. But right now you still have the chance now, after Jesus tells the, the people this, he goes into hiding. Once again, he's trying to escape from the authorities who are trying to take him out. And so John turns to a little aside. And that aside is the second thing that every person needs to know. It is that many won't believe in Jesus. Despite the obvious evidence of all the things that Jesus had been doing, there were a bunch of people who just wouldn't believe in Jesus. Jesus had shown them over the course of years that he was the promised Messiah with miracles, with uh, fulfilling prophecies of the Old Testament, and even with voice from heaven. But they still wouldn't believe. And this fits the pattern from Isaiah 53, where people doubt and reject the Messiah. They despise him. And so that's why John gives us a little cross-reference there to illustrate the point. From verse 37, even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed in our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
This is a reference to that passage from Isaiah 53. And even though we only get this little snippet here, it's calling to mind that whole section. Often they do that in the, uh, in the Bible. You'll, they, will, they will quote the first part of a passage and you're meant to go, oh, right, and import that whole section. It does like Jesus does when he stands on the, he stands, when he's nailed to the cross and he says, um, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? And you're meant to go, oh, that's the opening line from Psalm 16, and you go and read the whole psalm. And this is what's going on here. You're meant to go, oh, this is a reference from Isaiah 53, and you go and read the whole section of Isaiah 53. So the people can't believe they're rejecting their Messiah, even though he is there right before their very eyes. And this reminds us, this proves the point that many of us already know, that for many people, evidence doesn't really matter when it comes to matters of faith. People will say, I don't, there's not enough evidence for me to believe. But even when, even when all the miracles are happening before their very eyes, it's still not enough. The people here are unwilling to hear the message. Evidence does matter, but for many people... They only say that it matters. There's something going on in the heart that prevents people from trusting Jesus, even though the evidence is right in front of their eyes. And even today, even though Jesus is not here bodily, we have overwhelming evidence from the past and in the scriptures that testify to the fact that Jesus died, lived, died, and rose again from the dead. But there are many of us who are unwilling to consider this. We'll happily believe about other ancient figures and all the amazing things they did. But for some reason, Jesus is not trusted and not believed. But Jesus says in a parable, he says, look, there's a parable with the the rich man and Lazarus. And uh, Lazarus sees, uh, sorry, the, the rich man sees that he was wrong. When he goes to the afterlife, he sees he was wrong and he goes and pleads, Lord, can you please send somebody to warn my family? And God says, look, even if somebody came back from the dead and told you, they would not believe. That's literally what has happened in the preceding chapters where Lazarus has come back from the dead and then people are still not believing. And a short time later, it would be Jesus who comes back from the dead and they won't believe him either. Instead, we want to set ourselves up as the judge of God. I'll be the judge of the evidence. I'll decide whether or not God is real. But no proof will ever be enough for us if we make ourselves the judge of God. And John goes on here to make a closely related point. Not only are these people rejecting the Messiah and ignoring the evidence, there is a real sense in which they cannot believe. Their eyes are blind and their hearts are hard. This other prophecy from Isaiah. For this reason they could not believe, because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn. And I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. 
It's no use saying to a blind man, see. Saying it to him does not convince him, oh, I just need to open my eyes and then I might be able to see. He cannot see. Saying to a deaf man, hear, doesn't enable him to hear. Saying to a dead man, live, does not enable him to live. They are incapable of doing these things. They need an outside force to overcome the impediment. And this part of Isaiah is quoted in various places across the New Testament, demonstrating to us that this is a key passage for understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ and the way that people respond to it. And the crux of it is that those who reject Jesus, God hardens their hearts so they cannot believe. As is obvious throughout all of John's gospel, God gives, his people, gives people agency and they are held to account for what they do with their life. Yet God is also sovereignly ordaining everything that happens. So yes, if we use the, the, the popular language, we would say everything is fated to happen. It is fate that everything that happens should happen. But you are bringing that fate into reality with your choices, even while God uh, ordains these things and brings them to pass. And this is a biblical teaching that we can struggle with sometimes. It's been the subject of uh, many debates over these years. But seeing God in this light does not take away from his love and his mercy and his grace. In fact, these truths highlight to us just how gracious and loving God is. This passage opens up lots of questions around predestination and or double predestination. And these are all great things for us to talk about but I'm not going to flesh those out here. The point is that there are people who cannot believe because their hearts are hardened, both because they have hardened their hearts, they have rejected God, but also because God is at work hardening their hearts as well. It can be a, a struggle to believe this at times, especially when we trace out these truths to their logical conclusions. And so just a reminder that my door is always open if you want to, some help sorting through these things. But it's not, when we talk about God hardening people's hearts, it's not as though God is standing there and turning people away. No, everybody is running away from him already. They are naturally fleeing from him. And he reaches out and grabs those people and turns them around, those who would be saved. Anyone who turns to the Lord is saved. Anyone who repents is healed from the sickness of sin and death that pervades humanity. God does not turn anyone away. But the only people who can turn to God are those whom he has softened their hearts and worked in them to show his love and grace. And that's why we continually pray to God to save people because it's not in ourselves to save us. It's the God's work. It is God's work of grace and mercy. And so we ask him to break into people's hearts and to soften them, even as we go out with our agency and do what God called us to do and tell them about the gospel and call them to listen to this good news. Many people will reject Jesus and God will harden their hearts against the truth. But there will always be some who hear and believe, as John points out. Here is an example. 
At the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than the praise from God. So we've got here what we would call undercover believers. These are people who do actually believe in Jesus, but they won't openly acknowledge their faith because they are afraid. I mean, we see this fits what John says in in John chapter 1, that there would be many people who, uh, as we read in the opening of the service, uh, he came to his own people, but his own people did not receive him. But there will be some. Those who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. And we see some of these people here who did receive him. They have received Jesus, but as John points out, they're not 100% on board yet. They still have a little bit to go. They, they have believed on Jesus, but they're still more concerned for their reputation. They're still more concerned for their status than they are for Jesus. They don't want to openly say, I believe in Jesus. And so this is a good thing. They do believe. But what John's pointing out here is they still have another step to go. They need to lay down their life. They need to give up everything, including holding on to their status, including holding on to their reputation. They need to be able to lay it all down to believe in Jesus. And that's what we need to do as well. It's the third thing that we, that every person needs to know. You must hear and believe Jesus. You must hear and believe Jesus. So in this passage, John has just had this little aside about why some people reject Jesus and why um, there are the people who are hard-hearted and don't believe. And we return from that little aside to Jesus teaching about those who do believe. It's the opposite. Those, he teaches that this belief is not just some arbitrary trust in some invisible force. You might hear about that in movies or maybe the way that you kind of talk to your mates. They they talk about, oh, you've got to believe in something. Some people talk about faith in some invisible action of the universe to all things kind of work out in the end. You've just got to believe. You've just got to have faith. Or worse, you've just got to have faith in yourself. This is one of the biggest catechisms of the world that we hear over and over and over again and it is rubbish you don't have faith in yourself you can't even stick to your uh, new year's resolutions why on earth would you trust yourself with anything else we need a power from outside ourselves to come in and work in us and to rescue us Jesus says that we need to have faith in him. And in having faith in him, we're not just having faith in a man, we're actually having faith in God. Jesus cried out, Whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. Jesus is the way out of the darkness. And when we look to him, we see him 
and through him we see God. Remember, God is a spirit. He cannot be seen. No eye can see God. But Jesus is a representation, of the, uh, the, the image of God made visible in humanity. When we look to Jesus, God the Son, we see God the Father. He is here on God's mission, doing what God wants, as God in flesh. And Jesus came to save people from the darkness. And so anybody who puts their loyalty, anybody who puts their trust in him will not be left in the darkness. They'll be brought into the light. But this is not just an option held out to you as if you could take it or leave it. It's not, as again, it's not like going to the supermarket and just grabbing something off the shelf or it doesn't matter if you grab this one or that one. It's not neutral. This is a matter of life and death. This is a moral obligation that is on you to believe in Jesus Christ. You must respond to the words of Jesus and believe in him. Because what's the alternative? The alternative is to face God on your own merits. You'll be judged according to what Jesus has said. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person, for I did not come into the, to judge the world, but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and, the, and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. So let's just break this down for a second. Jesus is saying, I've not come to judge. And what it doesn't mean that he's never going to judge because other parts of the Bible teach us that Jesus is the judge of the world. But what, what he's saying here is that in the time that Jesus was there in his flesh, in the incarnation, he was not there to bring judgment. He was not there for judgment day. He was coming to win salvation. He was coming to accomplish the work of salvation. He, he is calling all men everywhere to repent and receive this salvation. But if you reject this salvation, you are rejecting Jesus. You're rejecting God. You're saying, no thanks, I'll hold on to my own sin and try my luck. And so, on Judgment Day, you will be judged in accordance with what Jesus has said. So in, the, in that sense, it's not Jesus doing the judging, it's, it's Jesus' words that are being used to compare, to make the judgment. The words of Jesus will condemn you if you haven't received him and believed in him. And Jesus isn't just uh, spat, spouting off as we... Um, as we heard before, he's got back up from heaven. And Jesus talks about that mission that he's on in these last verses. I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. So Jesus is doing exactly what, the, what God wanted. The God of the world is not some impersonal force but the one who sent Jesus, the one who revealed himself through Jesus. It's not good enough to say, I'm just spiritual or I'm religious and I have a vague kind of belief in spiritual things. God has revealed himself and he has shown us how we should live and how we should believe. 
And so in rejecting Jesus, you are rejecting God. But Jesus was here on God's mission, doing what God wanted, revealing the words that God gave him to say. He did what God the Father commanded in proclaiming the truth. And in so doing, he is leading people to eternal life. And that, that path to eternal life is open here still this morning. Hear and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I gave you three things that every person needs to know. You need to know that Jesus came to die. You need to know that there will be many who reject Jesus and reject God. But you must hear and believe Jesus. It's a simple message. It's a simple message, but it is life or death. There is a moral requirement on you to hear and believe in Jesus. And I'm not here trying to manipulate you into believing with, we don't have stirring chords playing right now while I I make this appeal to you. We don't have uh, slick lighting or fancy words. Neither am I trying to lay on you piles of guilt in order to shame you into believing. And I'm not going to make empty promises about health and wealth to try and uh, bribe you into faith. It's a simple message that you must hear and believe. A simple message of good news that there is eternal life for God's people who believe on Jesus, the one who brought you salvation. He calls you here today to believe these things, to trust in him, and so doing receive eternal life, and it's all for the glory of God. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this good news that has come to us. Lord, we struggle sometimes to understand how this applies to those people who, who reject you. And like we, sometimes we struggle, Lord, to understand how we fit into your plans. But Lord, it's not up to us to solve all these problems. You've, to, you've just called us to trust you. And you have shown us time and time again that you are trustworthy. And so, Lord, we trust you now by believing you and turning ourselves over to you, submitting ourselves to Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray for those who have not yet done this. We pray that you would soften their hearts and call them in to your kingdom of light. Lord, please work in us and enable us to hold on to these truths forever, to not be ashamed, to fear for our reputation or um, what might happen to us if if we sell out for Jesus. But instead, Lord, we ask that you might build us up. You might, you might give us peace, having been uh, found in Jesus. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We are going to-